Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Green Root Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Schlossberg. And for this episode, we're speaking with Amy Lewis of the Wild Foundation. Amy Lewis solves collective action challenges for the conservation and environmental movements with over 20 years research and practitioner experience in social movement building. Amy brings a powerful set of intuitive and strategic skills to the Wild Foundation, where she is the chief policy and communications officer. She is a member of an international team spearheading the historic effort to protect half the planet by 2030 to address dual threats of climate change and extinction. Welcome to the podcast, Amy. Hi, Josh. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, well, I'm psyched. And so let's get into it. And let's start with this cockamamie notion of protecting half the planet. What's that all about? Um, yeah, I mean, so uh, there's... <laughs> Where would you like me to start? What's that all about? Do you, do you want me to, I mean, because really what we're talking about here is we're not talking about the survival of nature. We're talking about the survival of our own species. And, um, and scientists are increasingly coming to the conclusion that in order for us to survive, we have to protect at least half the planet. Um, and so, I, I mean, that's, that's at the root of this. Um, where, would, where would you like me to go from there? <laughs> well, so what... What does this actually look like? What does it mean to protect half the planet? Like put a fence around it, to put a sign on it? What does that look like? Make it all wilderness? Well, I mean, wilderness and wild nature, I mean, wilderness is kind of a loaded term, and I think many of the people in your audience will understand that, so I don't have to explain it. But wild nature, um, the intact processes that essentially make life possible on earth. That's, that's what we're talking about here and preserving those. And in order to do that, you have to give nature space. Um, now that doesn't mean putting a fence around everything. That doesn't mean suddenly half the planet becomes a national park. And in fact, we find that there's some places where biodiversity and ecological services are actually better than they are in national parks, even though national parks and protected areas like that are cornerstones of biodiversity. And many of those places that actually have better ecological services are stewarded by indigenous groups and traditional cultures and local peoples. So by no means are we advocating for, you know, putting a fence around half the planet, but we are advocating for um, enhancing the ability of local people and indigenous people to manage their own lands in traditional ways. Uh, we're advocating for some certainly protected areas, especially when we're creating corridors that interconnect uh, one protected area to, to another. So we get those genetic flows and, and the, the, the natural flows that occur between different types of ecosystems. And we're also looking for voluntary conservation areas that, you know, you don't have to be a state actor or an indigenous community to do you can just create open spaces in your own community that can be accessed by the public, but are managed in such a way where you preserve the ecological integrity of those areas. So would it be accurate to say the plan is to have some areas that are, quote, preserved? So preserves where there is no development, there might be human impact in terms of maybe some hiking or something like that, but other than that, and then a lot of other stuff would be maybe a conservation or a working landscape approach? 
Oh, 100%. And in fact, the Wild Foundation has a project in Mali, West Africa, in a very remote, very rugged region called the Gorma. It's in the east part of Mali. And in that, that region is the size of Switzerland, and it has about a little over 400,000 people living in it. Um, and for the last over 10 years, we've been working with the communities there. Now, it's a bit challenging because it's a war zone, and there's an Islamic insurgency, and there's a lack of government institutions and things like that. But we've been working with the local communities um, and eight different ethnic groups to manage the commons for the first time at, together and to be able to um, impose restrictions on outsiders coming in and using natural resources and also to come to agreements about how to use natural resources in order to save um, the last Sahelian um, desert elephant herd there. And it's, and it's working um, with some, some hiccups caused by um, some, some violent insurgencies, but it's working. Um, and so, so that was definitely an example of a working landscape where the, the natural resources remain intact, the biodiversity remains intact, um, and the, the communities that inhabit that area remain intact as well. Yeah, things definitely get more difficult in other parts of the world outside of, say, North America, which is most of what I'm familiar with. So where folks are living closer to the land in other parts of the world, obviously the idea of clear them all off so the animals can live, that's, that's a very problematic idea. And it may be that some areas do need to be limited by the uh, amount of human encroachment, but it's certainly not a solution over there. It's not fair. And it may, like you say, be actually detrimental in some ways because folks can act as stewards. So I'm not sure if there's any examples in which maybe local folks can actually protect against poaching per se by just being there and knowing, yeah, we're not going to kill these animals, but it deters some bandits, say, from coming in and stealing the critters. Yeah, you're 100% accurate, Josh. Um, if oftentimes, if you remove a, a local population from that landscape, and, and maybe that local population, there was human wildlife co uh, conflict, or they weren't managing their biodiversity well. So it seems like a solution. But in fact, what it does is create a vacuum. And if that population isn't there, you can bet that other groups that are probably less well-intended are going to move in and start extracting resources from that area. So I don't see the removal of human populations as a long-term solution to any conservation or environmental problem. The fact is that every single landscape on this planet, because we live in a global society, every single landscape is a social ecological landscape. There's an ecological layer and there's now a social layer. And both of those impact the quality of the natural resources and ecological services there. If we don't address the social layer, if we don't address human culture, human habits, and human behavior, we're not doing conservation well. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. And I think ignoring social issues, not only is that inhumane, of course, it doesn't actually help the natural world. At the same time, I suppose I would push back in terms of I do personally and a lot of other folks see a value in landscapes that are not encroached upon by humans because there's really no question that 
humans have a larger impact than the, any other species on the planet. And there's that whole age-old debate, well, humans are nature and nature is humans. Like, yeah, I get that. But I think to suggest that, well, New York City is no different than a beaver meadow, I don't think we need to go into the whole Socratic method to understand why that's not really the, the same thing. So what percentage would you say would be areas that would be preserved, if any, of those areas around okay. the world? So we're, we're really getting into the weeds here. And my apology to anyone listening who, who doesn't want to listen to the technical policy details. Um, here, but essentially the IUCN has seven categories of protected areas. The IUCN is the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. It's a UN observer. It's basically the, the UN conservation arm. And um, they have seven official categories for protected areas. Six of those are, work really well for protecting ecological integrity when they're implemented correctly. Um, but only one of those categories, uh, and that the, the the first category, category one, and there's a, there's a subcategory in that category one A and one B. Only that category is wilderness. Okay. The idea of there is no permanent infrastructure. Um, you know, uh, outside groups don't um, don't live there. Now, category one B is wilderness that indigenous communities live on, where, where there, there are traditional groups who manage it in traditional ways, um, they live there too. So we do have a concept of, of wilderness that does include people, but it doesn't include people in the way we conceive of, say, New York City. There's no permanent infrastructure. There's, um, there's no industrial extraction. Um, it's, it's people who live in a very reciprocal relationship with, with, with nature. So um, I, I am not qualified and I'd be hard pressed to say how many people are qualified, to say that many people are qualified to, to um, give an exact percentage of how much of the planet needs to be wilderness. Because not even national parks, which are category two in the IUCN, not even national parks are wilderness. Right. You do have permanent, you have roads there. Yeah. And, and that and national parks are created for recreation, essentially. Wilderness areas exist purely for nature to function as nature has done for millions of years. Right. So I'm not I'm not qualified to say that. And I think that is something that as a society we're going to figure out. Um, right now, what we know for a fact is that at least 50 percent of the planet has to be preserved in some type of protected area or other effective conservation measure like indigenous lands to preserve the ecological intactness. But you're right, we need places where nature exists just to be nature and for no other reason, not to support humans, not to, you know, for recreation, it just exists in its natural state. And, um, and I can't, I, I can't tell you how much of the planet needs to be that. I will say what, what WILD and our coalition of partners in the Nature Needs Half Network are, are working towards is we would like to see at least 30% of the planet protected in those official IUCN categories by 2030 and an additional 20% protected in other effective conservation measures like indigenous lands. Right now we're sitting at about 20 to 20, 25 to 27 percent. 
um, if we include both of those. So there's approximately 15% of the terrestrial area of the planet, a little under 10% of the marine areas are protected areas, um, IUCN protected areas, and another 10% are other effective conservation measures. So we're sitting at 20 to 25 to 27%. We need to push that up to 50, uh, double the, the size of official protected areas, um, and double the size of other effective conservation measures in the next 10 years to have a chance of preserving the life system of the planet. That makes a lot of sense. I think anything that moves things forward without without making it so we can't move forward further, if that makes any sense, I support. Uh, I do think it's obvious that we're gonna need different gradations. I think while some of us, including me, would like to see as much wilderness as possible, that's my simplistic way of looking at the world. All I know is that nature seems to know what it's doing and humans clearly do not. And that may sound misanthropic, probably because it is a little bit, I do believe in human potential, but I also believe in human history as in, oops, this is what we've done this far. So I'm personally, and I know a lot of other wilderness folks, obviously, would be pushing for more wilderness. But let's let's say we're in the U.S., right? Because it does get more complicated in other parts of the world, largely because I don't really understand what's going on basically outside of my own tiny sphere, to be honest. But I at least have a general understanding of what's going on in the U.S. So we have in the U.S. public lands, which are in the form of national forests, Bureau of Land Management or BLM lands, national parks, wilderness, state forests, state wilderness areas, even county lands, stuff like that. Would this plan at all be pushing to turn any of that into more protected or is that already considered that's has a designation so we're good on that? Yeah, our national forests and our national parks um, and um, to some degree our BLM lands, not all of them, but some of them do fall under the different IUCN categories for protected areas. So, um, so, and, and I believe the United States, I'm going to have to double check, um, the wild foundation tends to focus on international, um, wilderness issues. Um, and that's because in the United States, we have a wilderness policy framework going back to 1964 and the wilderness act. We have a definition, we have a, 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 a framework we're creating protected areas that include wilderness. There are other places in the world, some pretty significant places that don't even have a word for wilderness. Um, in those places, the assumption is you look out into what we would call a wild landscape and that is just viewed as empty land. Um, so wild for the last four decades has worked to expand this wilderness wild nature concept institutionally around the world and create a word and a framework for actually creating wilderness areas um, in other countries. So, um, so that's why we do what we do. But yeah, um, in in the United States, I think we're around between 15 and 17 percent of our uh, terrestrial area is um, falls within one type of IUCN protected area or another, and. Um, we obviously need to do a lot to increase that. Um, now, in order to do that, 
we have to look at what's intact right now and what's not. And there's actually a great map, a Google map um, that shows this for the, the whole world um, that shows the level of intactness of ecological services um, and landscapes around the world, including the United States. And also there's another overlay, the level of protection. And if you look up um, Eric Dinnerstein, Manga Bay um, and bioscience in a Google search, you'll go to an article that can take you to that map. It's, it's, it's worthwhile looking at. In the United States, the eastern half east of the Mississippi is very, very degraded. There's, and that's not to say we can't put protections there, but there's gonna be a lot of restoration that needs to be done in order to get the level of functionality out of those systems that we need. The West, on the other hand, the West is still pretty intact. And so it's going to be relatively easier for us to set aside land in the West. That's not to say we don't need land in the East, but if, if, if we're working on budgets, um, <laughs> <laughs> it might want to start with setting aside a bunch of land in the West and looking more towards restoration and ecological corridors in the eastern half of the United States. Sure. Yeah. West is definitely where the biggest chunk remain. And there are just frankly a lot of people in the in the Northeast. <laughs> I don't know what we do with them. So I come from the Northeast. In my mind, and tell me if this is crazy, in my mind, what I would like to see is an increase in the protection of currently what we have in the U.S. So we have national forest lands, but the reality is we still log them. We thread them full of roads. There are a lot of negative impacts on all that. Is If we're here in the U.S., it makes sense. Listen, there are all these things we need to do in the other parts of the world, and there's actually way more land there, and they don't even have the framework of wilderness for sure. And I won't even deny that that should probably be the, the priority focus. But should it be, well, we, we did our part in the U.S., so you all fix stuff, or we're going to fix stuff in the rest of the world. Wouldn't it be nice if we in the U.S. could level up? And would that leveling up perhaps look like transferring national forests and other things like that into more wilderness? What would you think about that concept? Oh, absolutely. Um, absolutely. We're, we're, we're um, working on... Um, strengthening the level of protection as well as um, how we implement those protections in the United States, 100%. Um, it's, I hate to say this, and every time I say this, I, I cringe inside because I'm a, a bit of a radical at heart and a bit of a revolutionary at heart. I think I have deep skepticism about the system we live in and believe that we need to replace our current economic and political system in order to achieve um, what really needs to be done. That being said, because I don't have any idea about how to do that in the time frame that we need to do it in, um, we're stuck with reform. And um, I think it's a question of, of small steps forward. Right now, we're not even making small steps forward in the United States, we're going backwards. And when you said we have public lands in the United States, I made a mental note. I was like, yeah, we still have public lands in the United States, but who knows for how much longer, um, given what's been going on in, with the current administration. So um, I think that we need to work hard at creating a recognition that we need more public lands and start 
putting designations on those areas right now, even if we don't have the budget at the moment to fully enforce those protections. At the same time, we need to be having hard conversations with how we use our current public lands. And, you know, like um, putting oil and natural gas drilling rigs on them probably isn't great for the environment. Um, so we, I think we need to have some of those hard conversations. I think the, the road one is going to be especially hard. So maybe we can just start with the idea of oil and natural gas and maybe that those should be limited on in protected areas. And in fact, the Wild Foundation back in 2016, we um, worked very hard to pass a motion at the IUCN that would get the IUCN to recommend against uh, industrial extraction in, in protected areas because the IUCN had not done that yet. It was 2016. And um, we weren't at all certain that we, that would happen um, because of resistance in the past. And yet over 150 countries voted for that and it went into effect. And most of the protected areas that have gone into place after that, and there's been, that's covered about two to 3% of, of Earth's land surface, um, have come in under that recommendation where countries are saying, okay, this protected area won't have uh, a natural gas drilling rig on it. <laughs> right. That seems like a logical place to start, taking a yeah. look at public land and saying, we shouldn't be doing energy extraction. I would take it further and say, we need to take a look at grazing. We need to took it, take a look at logging across the boards. But starting at least with people right now are seem to be the most concerned about fossil fuels infrastructure, which I agree is a, is a major issue. I don't think just focusing on that and not caring about all the other forest impacts is enough. But I, I like ideas that move us in a direction so long as they don't keep us there forever. So I think I'd be in support of that. Um, have you heard of any major environmental group in the U.S. who is calling for the end of extraction like this on public lands because i haven't um i i wouldn't know and i i i assume i hope that there is i would assume that um that um um the environmental defense fund might be working on something like this but i i i don't know and again my daily wick tends to be outside of the united states so sure. that's not, that's not to say the united states isn't important it is um, but we're really working on building public and institutional awareness around the importance of wild nature around the world. I understand that. And we'll get more into that because I know that is your wheelhouse, whereas my wheelhouse is kind of here in the U.S. <laughs> and pushing back against the fact that anyone who's listening to this, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't know if any of the major environmental groups in the U.S. have been advocating for that at all. They'll, they'll say generically that they don't support things or they'll come out against a pipeline here and there, but the idea of ending it on public lands across the board, I have not heard that terminology. And an organization I used to work for, and I'll have a podcast with the founder of that organization, Tim Hermack with Native Forest Council, they had been long pushing, pushing for zero cut on public lands, which also had a bit swirling around it where zero extraction on public lands. Not only was that not supported by the major environmental groups, it was pushed back against very, very hard. So I'm not going to grill you on why that is, because that's not your that's not your territory. But I would just say very logical ideas and the mainstream environmental movement in the U.S. ain't interested. Well, 
as I can, as a political scientist, I do feel comfortable in giving a generic answer about why that is, and it's called entrenched interests. <laughs> uh, so. That is definitely true. And I've talked about that a lot. I'm always trying to steer it back into the positive instead of going into my dark little rabbit hole of conspiracy theories and whatnot. But what ends up happening is you put forward a positive idea. And you're like, Surely you all will support this, right? And then it's just like crickets or attacks. Let's, let's, let's get, actually, since you brought up the word conspiracy theory, I just want to, <laughs> I want to say, Let's not throw because I I see I see a lot of articles coming out about how conspiracy theorists are you know um, we're like we're insane and I say we because I certainly <laughs> I certainly indulge based on evidence uh, material evidence and some what other people would call conspiracies um, but let's let's not throw that out for two reasons the first is this. Um, I think that this this reaction against conspiracy theorists, um, it's not entirely benign. Okay, like I think it it essentially um, shuts down questions, important questions, before they can even be asked. And as a scholar, my my primary tool for understanding the world is curiosity. And I don't think that any question should be out of bounds. And it doesn't, maybe, maybe that question is, is going down the wrong path. Um, and so, but you need to be able to show that with empirical evidence, there needs to be real conversation around it. The second reason is that conspiracies are real and they happen all the time and we have plenty of evidence for this. In fact, the first charge in the Nuremberg trials against Nazi leaders was conspiracy. And it happens in the, in the US legal system all the time, conspiracy conspiring to fix prices or what, whatever else. So conspiracy theories do happen. Some of them can be quite long lived uh, before the, you know, facts actually come out into the open. And I don't doubt that there are many conspiracies that occur around the way we use the, the natural riches of this planet. <laughs> so you're saying that there is a conspiracy against conspiracy theorists. Absolutely. And actually, <laughs> as a political scientist, I can I can go into the history of the term conspiracy theory and how that became weaponized right, versus just right. Because it basically it doesn't it mean legally more or less it's just two people, two or more people moving forward with a particular agenda. Like that's pretty much yeah, what a conspiracy secret, is. So obviously, secretly an agenda. Yeah, and you you get that all the way down at the the country club level. And we have plenty of national and global country clubs. So, <laughs> right, right. Well, it's, so there's a conspiracy theory, and then there's conspiracy evidence. And yeah, I have a friend who works a lot on this kind of stuff. And he does also point out how there is disinformation. So, information put out there deliberately to muddy the waters. So if you have a particular view that is a little bit off the beaten path, there will also be another view, maybe potentially or intentionally put out there to make yours seem even crazier than it is. Oh, you're the people who, you know, there might be some other uh, mammals that live around here. Oh, you're the people who think that Bigfoot is real, even though that's a terrible analogy, because Bigfoot is, of course, real. So that's uh, on my next podcast. But yeah, so yeah, talk a little bit about the conspiracy stuff, and then we'll get back into the how we protect the whole planet. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean just, a, just a little bit more on conspiracies. Um, mm -hmm. Um, yeah, disinformation is real, and it definitely happens in the the environmental world. I mean, the whole 
just look at the climate change dialogue for 30 years in the United States. There was so much disinformation. And, and, and nowadays, um, because of the, the, the conspiracy against conspiracy theorists, the fact that, you know, at, at one point in time, we would have essentially lumped in the people who believed that the U.S. had inappropriately intervened in Iranian politics in 1953 with the same people who believe the earth is flat. Um, <laughs> that, that shows you the level of conflation that's going on. And I think we, I think that we need to evaluate questions, ideas, and evidence on a case-by-case -case basis, and not allow um, the condescension that um, occurs um, around conspiracy theories to prevent us from considering certain ideas. Well, that would certainly be nice and logical and rational, but folks can weaponize things, and if it works, they're gonna keep doing it. So I don't expect that to stop anytime soon, but it's good to understand why it's happening and maybe avoid getting boxed in in that way by making our arguments, by acknowledging, okay, here are the people who believe in flat earth. That's not what we're talking about. I'm just saying that if you will fall off the planet if you go a little further into the back, <laughs> which is also true. But no, none of that's true, but pointing out how, listen, we can make this reasonable point that might be a little bit out of the status quo purview, and it doesn't necessarily put us in this category, but guess what? The people who control the dialogue a lot of times and a lot of folks in the media, I've been a part of the media, they kind of commandeer the conversation. And these days when they don't actually allow a response, which I noticed about Planet of the Humans, like say what you want about the film, that that's not even the point. The point is that there was some stuff that was said about the filmmakers that was pretty slanderous by some major publications. Those publications literally would not allow a rebuttal. They would not allow a response. So that's a little I, bit problematic right now. Yeah, 100%. And um, it contravenes everything we know about uh, how knowledge, objective knowledge is created. Um, and, you know, I'm, we're going like way off path here, but, you know, 300 years ago, we had a, a, a revolution um, and that was called the Enlightenment. The whole point of the Enlightenment was to democratize things. It didn't do it perfectly because the way it democratized things was it took decision making out of the hand of a central authority, the king or the church, and handed it um, to a wider swath of people who just happened to own property and penises. Um, but but it, it started that process. And at the same time that decision-making was being democratized, knowledge creation was being democratized too. And it was, it, you know, before knowledge had come only from authority. If you had authority, you could say whatever you wanted to about the world and that's what got written down. And there's this idea that no knowledge creation needs to belong to everybody and there needs to be a system for how it's created that involves the senses because everybody has those. And that became empiricism. And that was how we decided we were going to understand material reality objectively. The fact is, 300 years later, that revolution is incomplete. Um, the vast majority of us, you and I, all of us really, still receive the vast majority of our knowledge from authority. Now, some of our authorities might be scientists, you know, and other people's authorities may be church leaders and other people's authorities may be I, I don't know, the Republican National Committee. Um, but we're still receiving our knowledge from authority. We're not using our empirical senses. We don't, we aren't trained 
to understand how to evaluate data and how how to go through that process. And that's not, I mean, it's really hard to do. Like, I, I don't have time to replicate every single piece of research I see. To some degree, we have to rely on authority. But I think we also need to recognize how much all of us do rely on authority and engage our curiosity a little bit more mm -hmm. as a remedy against that. Because I think curiosity is the ultimate form of insubordination. I totally agree. And that's why I've been getting in trouble my whole life, I think, since I was a little kid. I'm just, I just want to know. And my teacher's like, you're not supposed to talk about that. So they send me out of the room. And then I was like, I just want to put this idea out there publicly in a protest. And the police are like, you can't do that. You're going to go to jail. And then I've experienced it with writing. Well, here are some of the critiques I have of the authorities, right? Not just dismissing them out of hand, but having a critique. And then they say, you can't put that out there. You're a bad person and we're going to silence you. So I found that it's very difficult to critique the authorities. But at the same weird time, there is this move to just completely dismiss authorities by saying it's all bullcrap, as in with the COVID stuff. Of course, there's stuff that they're figuring out as we go along and we don't know a lot. And there's probably there's bullshit and everything, frankly. But I'm not going to be like, well... I'm just going to assume everything that virologist is saying is untrue because I feel like it. That's pretty dumb, right. <laughs> but right. I can critique a specific point, you know, Right. You have to have a good reason to, to contradict authority and some type of basis in material reality to do that. Right. Um, but I still, I think that the people who are dismissing our authorities, the, the scientists, the virologists, the climate um, folks, they have their own authorities. They, their authorities may be, you know, a conservative talk show host. It could be right. like, you know, something that they were told by their parents that, you know, that's how they were raised or whatever. So they're still relying on authority too. Yeah. So we get into this irrational situation where we're pitting authorities against authorities and we don't even recognize it because essentially I think what all of society is saying right now in these debates about whether COVID-19 is real or climate change is caused by human activity or whatever, we're basically saying my authority is better than your authority. Right. And we aren't trained as children, as students, we aren't trained to understand how to evaluate authority and use our own curiosity to look at material reality. And because um, because in school, in school, what do they? We, we we oftentimes we learn things by memory. We're just supposed to sit there and take notes and write down what what the teacher or the professor said and repeat it back. Um, and you know, I I again I repeat this. I think curiosity is the most underestimated tool in our arsenal as individuals, and it's also the most powerful weapon against authority, um, especially those authorities that are, are trying to deceive us. That is, that is absolutely true. And I will also repeat the fact that it is a dangerous thing to have that curiosity because then you start becoming critical and then you find yourself <laughs> exiled, which is why the Green Root podcast, we're trying to bring on folks who maybe don't always have the public megaphone. I mean, your foundation foundation has definitely gotten a lot of information out there, but we have a lot of folks who are basically almost not allowed to speak. And the other point of the podcast, you mentioned we're going far afield. No, that's exactly the point of this podcast is to get to the root of why we're at certain junctures in 
our current way of looking at the natural world and other things like that. So the, the idea of why we're not allowed to talk about these ideas, why certain ideas are dismissed out of hand, where the information comes from, that's the, the Green Root podcast, getting to the root of that. So that's, that's exactly why I don't have any sort of script, not just because I'm lazy, but because I want to see where things go and because I'm lazy. But... <laughs> But I, yeah, I really like what you're saying about that stuff and, and having, having those discussions, I think is really important. And unfortunately they, they don't tend to happen. And I think a lot of it is people also don't have the time to seek out all this information on their own. So maybe they would like to do their own studies or just think about it more, but they don't maybe have the time. They're exhausted. They're working all day. They come home, they're dealing with kids, household chores. Then they have to zone out with alcohol or some television show, uh, both of which I have partaken in. <laughs> um, and so then you're not really processing this stuff. And then you wake up and yeah, what is, oh, what does that guy say? Okay, or I hate everything that guy says, no matter what, even if it makes sense. So that's kind of how we're going about the world. But let's take things back a little bit to the mission of the organization and just some of the stuff around that. So I know, so this concept of working landscapes makes some people nervous, including me. Now, I am probably a bit more reasonable these days <laughs> than a lot of other wilderness folks and just saying that makes them hate me. But guess what? Everyone hates me a little bit because I don't agree with everyone but I pretty much have overlap with almost everyone. So I personally want to see as much wilderness as possible. At the same time, I can't pretend that the right outskirts of Denver is just going to turn into a land where humans cannot be. Like that's just silly nonsense for that to happen anytime soon. I realize that's not going to happen. So there might be some areas where I can understand this might be an area that is utilized for forestry this is an area where there can be grazing. This is an area where there is some. So I, I don't live in a fantasy world where I don't think any of that would happen. But what we have seen, and a lot of folks are very skeptical of groups like the Nature Conservancy that, so they amass lots of money and they buy up big chunks of land, which seems good, but a lot of times those, they couch it in the terms of these lands are protected, but they're actually doing a fair amount of logging and other extraction, which I feel like if if an organization is being upfront, here is the point of this, that's sort of fine. But if you look at their website, it's it glosses over that reality. And there's literal clear cuts on their protected land. And there's really no aspect of that that's even really good forestry. So how, how do we leave the alleviate the concerns of people like me, zealots like me, or other folks who think the way I do about, oh, so you're just turning this into a whole big uh, nature conservancy around the world thing. Yeah, you know, I don't think that that happens overnight. Um, and the, there's definitely different qualities of working landscapes, right? Mm -hmm. um, the first thing I'm gonna say, uh, it just as a, a disclaimer for everything else that might come out of my mouth, um, during the rest of this conversation is that, um, I, you know, I'm not going to single out any of the larger NGOs, what we call the bingos, the big NGOs at all. Um, in fact, I know many really good and well-intentioned people who work at them oh, yeah. and who are working hard, um, to push more ambitious agendas. Mm -hmm. Me too. Um, that being said, it's a blessing and a curse being a big NGO that receives a billion dollars in donations every year. 
um, because you suddenly have a much wider swath of stakeholders that you are beholden to. Fortunately, Wild being small NGO that it is, doesn't really have a lot in the way of conflict of interest. And that enables us to, I think, have a purer and more ambitious me message. And um, I hope it stays that way. Uh, so, um, so um, no, but, but, but getting to how do we alleviate your concerns? The first thing is, like, to some degree, Josh, we have to be pragmatic. Um, and we don't, we don't have time for a revolution. Um, we have got to set aside what's still intact and what's still functioning right now in in whatever um, in whatever way we can. And if that means that those landscapes are working landscapes for the moment, then that's what we do. And in fact, even if even if we had 50% of the planet in a pure wilderness state, if the other 50% of that planet occupied by humans is occupied by a culture and civilization in which our behavior is disrespectful and in which our actions do not support a wild biosphere, that other 50% that's wilderness isn't gonna remain wilderness for long. So we can't, even though humans are certainly the problem and the cause of the problem, that doesn't mean just excluding them is going to, to, to make this better. We have got to target human behavior and human culture. And that means doing so in places that aren't um, semi-intact areas, and that also means doing so in semi-intact areas. So I, again, I, I don't have a silver bullet here. I don't believe in silver bullets. Um, I believe in silver buckshot. And we're gonna have to approach this in multiple ways on a case-by-case -case level and evaluate things on a case-by-case -case basis. Um, we don't we don't have time to make vast generalizations and we we frankly need to get everything we can in a semi-intact state at this point in time. Our survival depends on it. Yeah, I agree with the urgency message. I am I did a recent little I guess it was a Facebook live thing, but I'm going to have somebody on to talk more about it. The whole doom and gloom perspective. I'm I'm probably on the doom and gloom scale i'm probably i used to be more like a nine now i'm probably like a 7.6 on it so i'm still believe though in urgency for sure that you know the fact that i've gone from nine to 7.6 doesn't mean that there should be less urgency i'm just kind of more okay with how things turn out but i don't think that that means we should lessen our efforts uh, i actually think that having the right mindset about things can make us more effective I understand these gradations concept. It's still going to be folks like me who are going to be pushing for as much wilderness as possible. And we're going to still think that that's the best thing that we can do. And we're still going to want to push the edge of that as much as we possibly can. While at the same time, I realize that there are other aspects out there and that everything isn't going to be wilderness and isn't going to be wilderness overnight. One thing I would say is that while a working landscape thing can be a placeholder, usually it's not, if an area is designated for human development, whatever that would look like, it's rarely going to continue into wilderness. So I do think that there's a reality to that. One of the big 
issues that have been happening in the Pacific Northwest, say, that I've been a part of in the years past when I was an activist, are the folks who say, let's protect the old growth. And everyone's like, sure, let's protect the old growth. And then some of the rest of us are, well, let's also make sure that we're not hacking to pieces the rest of the national forest that maybe had been overcut in the past and we need to restore it, right? But they're a different idea of restoring it. So a lot of folks are saying, yeah, yeah, that's why we got to go in there and do plenty of industrial logging. And we're saying, well, I don't think that that's the answer. Let's just say going in there and thinning out forests one time with all the roads and all the erosion, all the impact, it was a good idea. Let's just say that's a good idea. They're never going to leave. You give them an inch, they take a yard. So I'm not asking you to respond. I'm just saying that there are always going to be folks like me who are going to push back a little bit on that angle, even though I do understand what you're trying to do overall. Well, no, and 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 we need that. The you know, in terms of how how change occurs, it's a it's a conversation. It's um, the dynamic between radical, and I'm going to put you in the radical category, <laughs> but I'm not using that in a positive sense you. at all. <laughs> Because radicals create the demand and the pressure that reformists can then leverage to start getting. So I'm I'm 100% for you continuing to push back and to make conservation more ambitious. And and frankly, for me, that's the the big challenge with the conservation sector is ramping up their ambition. Because if the conservation sector isn't ambitious, no one else is going to be. So mm-hmm. I mean, we have to be more pure in our intentions and in our ambition. One question for you. So you used to be on a nine on the doom and gloom scale, but now you're like a 7.6. Where did this upwelling of optimism come from, Josh? I think working more on my mental health, honestly. Um, This is probably a bigger topic than we need to get into for this, but I do think obviously our perspective on the world colors our perspective on the natural world. So if we're in a headspace that maybe isn't that positive, we're going to see everything in terms of negativity. At the same time, I think the idea of everything is fine now, I don't think that's true. And I think there might be a level of consciousness where you do realize no matter what happens, it is okay. I am not there. (laughs) So... But I am am realizing... It was once I was out in the... Utah desert years ago, and I was sitting there because I worked on a lot of forest stuff. So you see just the trees hacked apart and the soil eroded, just it's all right in front of you. I was out in the desert and it was just this beautiful rock expanse for miles and miles. And I was like, we probably can't even make a dent on this. And obviously there's more to it than that, as in we can destroy entire desert ecosystems, we can mess up the whole thing. But I started to realize we humans while we do have the power to eliminate ecosystems and everything like that, I think the land is a little bit stronger than we're making it out to be. And at the same time, none of my urgency and none of my beliefs have changed. I still think that wilderness or whatever concept you want to want to utilize, I still think nature does know what it's doing. We humans don't quite know what we're doing. I think it may be that certain aspects we have muddled with where we have to go in there and fix it and restore. But I do also know that concept of if it ain't if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So if I had to trust millions and millions of years of natural ecosystems versus, frankly, 100,000 years of us undeniably messing things up, I'm probably going to go with nature. 
I'm no longer really a, a misanthrope so much, but I still do think nature knows best. And I read lots of stuff that pushes back against my own perspective, so I'm open to that. And I think what's different from me compared to a lot of wilderness folks is that I don't really have animosity towards folks who don't share my views. And you mentioned before, I'm not going to single out the NGOs. I will definitely single out the NGOs, but I don't single out the individuals. And in fact, I don't have any real negative feelings towards the individuals, except the ones that actively censor voices. Those people I have a real hard time with, but I try to focus on arguing against ideas, right? And then even if people are doing something that I think is not great, it's like, love the sinner, hate the sin. I'm not religious in any way, but okay, this person might be advocating for this thing that's not so great. How do I reach that person? I know pretty much I would venture to say 99% of the people in a lot of these large organizations are well-meaning. I would say almost probably even more than that. I think every, who isn't well-meaning? I mean, everyone thinks that they're doing good. So I don't, I don't take that away from them and I don't think that they're terrible people and a lot of them are friends of mine and I've worked with folks like that and talk like, talked with folks like that over the years. At the same time, I do have certain ideas that I think differ from others. So it, it may be as simply as that biocentric concept of biocenters and nature at the center of it versus humans at the center of it. But I'm, I'm open to that changing because I know you mentioned we can't just focus on the, the nature component because we humans are what's going on with all of this. And, and I do agree with that. There's all these pieces. I'm actually reading a book right now called Integral Ecology, and it's 800 pages. So I'm waiting to finish it before I invite the the folks on who wrote it, but basically they're talking about humans in the landscape and then the different notions of nature. So we have these different views of what nature is, nature operating purely on its own versus nature that we're actually nature. I'm nature. I'm living in a house here. I'm nature. Sure. But I, I do find myself still bristling a little bit or pushing back against the, that's why there's no difference between asphalt and topsoil, which I don't think anyone's quite saying that, but, but there is an implication. And I think we do have to be able to distinguish the fact that even though humans are a part of nature, we have deliberately separated ourselves from it. And we have created a human based world that almost all of the creations in it are human based. So if beavers had done the same thing where everything turns into a beaver meadow, that would be a problem as well. So you didn't, I'm basically creating a straw man because I know you didn't say any of those things, but. No, no, can I, can I respond? Intent. Because I think that without judgment of an individual or an institution, we can objectively say based on facts um, that certain ideas are wrong. And, you know, we don't have to judge the individual to make that assessment of an idea. And we, can, we also know, based on objective science, what's needed in terms of our survival. And when it comes to, you know, this idea of are we, because we're from nature, is everything that we do natural? Does that make a natural gas rig um, natural? And obviously, no. And here's why. Because at some point in the relatively recent past, if you look at this from a geologic scale, at some point in the relatively recent past, human societies went from being embedded in the web of life and working with that to trying to control it 
And I think that the ultimate idea that has come out of that trend is sustainability. Because sustainability is this idea of like, okay, we reached this point in our civilization that we're relatively happy with and we're comfortable, we're very comfortable. Um, and we've distanced ourselves from the perception that life is struggle, life is competition, and life is a fight to survive. We've distanced ourselves so we can believe that, that our houses and our civilization will protect us from this discomfort. Let's sustain it. And that doesn't mean working with the natural world. That doesn't mean embedding ourselves in the natural world. We start to consider the natural world now, but we, we have distanced ourselves from that fundamental fight for survival. Well, I think what we're beginning to recognize, at least some of us, is all of that's an illusion. Sustainability is an illusion. And that we have um, stripped the earth of its natural resources in order to foster that illusion. But once that bank of soil fertility and water and climate stability is gone, we're gonna be right back at square one. And if we don't, if we don't start making decisions now to return to an objective idea about survival and what that means and our relationship with nature, then nature will return us to that place for us. And I think it will be a much harsher lesson than the one that we could learn for ourselves. Yeah, I, I agree with pretty much all of that. And I don't even use the term sustainable. I call it the S word just because it's been so abused. And so the question is, is industrial society, our ever expanding industrial society, is that sustainable? So if we protect, so we protect the lands, right? And I think that's a, we need to do that because otherwise they'll be eaten up. But wouldn't it be that even if we protect those lands, if we keep expanding, and that can look like lots of different things. So there, there's the equation of impact, which is equal population times affluence towards technology. You don't have to talk about population. No one wants to talk about population. I'm actually doing that on a, a next podcast and that'll definitely get me canceled. But I come pre-canceled, so it doesn't matter. But, <laughs> and I, I don't actually even think, I think a population is just a, a, a piece of it, frankly. But would you say that it is enough to just protect these landscapes without some other deeper change eventually? No. Um, I, I mean, and the, the, my organization started 40 years ago in the African wilderness. Mm -hmm. And it, was, it, was, it began as um, a friendship, a working friendship between two men, Ian Player, a South African game ranger, and his Zulu mentor, Makubu Intembella. And my organization within our DNA is still this very animist, very um, traditional, um, very African view of the world and our place in it. And I don't think the question we should be asking is, can we sustain this? I think the question we should be asking now is, can we survive like this? And do we want to? I want to change one, exchange one S word for another. I want to move the conversation out of sustainability and into survival and what it is our species needs in order to survive and to continue to be the innovative and creative um, uh, forces that we are, but to do so in a context 
we're, we're not having to have a conversation every single year about, you know, what, what new existential threats from climate change to extinction to now pandemics are caused by our broken relationship with nature. So, so for me, this question is survival. And that's, um, that's part of the reason why our public, wild public facing campaign for the protection of half the planet is called the survival revolution. We're no longer, we're no longer in a place of sustainability. I think we know what we're doing can't be sustained. So I think we need to be asking, how do we survive and how much nature do we need to survive? Yeah, well, I think a lot of listeners of the Green Root Podcast will definitely resonate with that. A lot of folks are talking about the survival aspect. And I agree, it's dire enough that we should have that conversation. I don't personally think that we're going to go kablooey in October. But I do think that... What's that? But you never know, given our uh, constellation of world leaders at this point in time. <laughs> well, we might do that to ourselves, but I, I don't think the planet yeah. itself is just going to go kablooey. But who, who the hell knows? But yeah, it is that unraveling at a certain point in time. It unravels to the point where you can't re-ravel it, even though that's not a word. It's not even a word because it's impossible. Uh, but yeah, well, what would you think about this? Though? So this is so going going in my mind as deep as I can go, which isn't. I guess that deep, but so here we are, we're like, I'm going to logically convince people to, this is the thing and blah, blah, blah. I think ultimately, unless people are in the headspace and you can use the term consciousness, which I do to appreciate nature and give a shit about nature, then all this falls on deaf ears. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're right. And this is, this is a scientific fact. The scientific fact is facts don't work at persuading most people. Facts work at persuading or mobilizing those who are already on on the bandwagon. But um, political psych- psychologists have done numerous stories where you can you can you can give really well documented evidence counter to somebody's opinion, but that individual has spent decades accumulating what they perceive as evidence that is in support of their opinion. So your very well-documented evidence that maybe undermines all of that goes up against a mountain of evidence that they have. And it's, it's what's going to happen is cognitively, they're just going to discard and dismiss your evidence. Um, and so that doesn't work because humans aren't fully rational. The half, the, the, the enlightenment sold us a half truth. It, it, t- it told us this belief that we could, we, we are rational. And I think what it should have said in it, what it, it should have been said instead is that humans could be rational. We can be at times rational. We do have this capacity to evaluate things on facts, but emotion gets in the way. And in fact, when we make decisions and when we take actions, whether we recognize it or not, it's our heart center. It's our emotional state that is um, manipulating the way we think. And I think at this point in time, we as a sector, even though we're so into the sciences, our, our authorities, our, our priest class, our scientists, we need to start consulting storytellers. We need to start consulting those who are good at constructing narratives and feelings um, that actually touch people and move them into a space where it's like, okay, if I'm this type of person, and I am, 
what am I going to do about this? Because facts aren't working. <laughs> I So yeah, I, I went through that whole process where, where I was an activist and then I realized, okay, people who already agree with me are right on board and the rest aren't. That's why I'm going to focus more on getting facts out through environmental journalism. I realized it was the same damn thing. <laughs> people are like, great job, Josh, with the facts that I already agree with. And then the other people are just like, you know, their heads go kablooey because it, it's just not anything that they, they want to deal with. And then I am also a fiction writer and I write horror fiction. <laughs> so I have, I'm not saying given up on all the rest, but I have been focusing more and more on my storytelling. So you get characters that people care about. You get stories that are interesting. Then you can put messages in there. Not a brainwashing kind of thing. If anything, it should be trying to challenge your own views of the world and stuff like that. But I think having a little bit more of the, the pro nature or just the discussion of the nature thing in the horror. So I actually write biological horror. So I put in, usually it's just around diseases and weird shit like that. But I've been experimenting with that and horror is a, a limited genre. So uh, maybe other folks who don't write horror can chime in on, on the storytelling that's a little more accessible. But I agree that that's important. How has 2020 affected your biological story, horror story? <laughs> it's made me give up because the world is way more insane than any of the stories that I could write. So I've had to, I've, I've been writing a, a slightly different kind of stuff. I've been, because I had been predicting and writing about pandemics for years. And then, then it happens. I'm like, well, writing about that prediction is no longer going to be interesting to people. So, um, and they ignored me when it mattered. So what, <laughs> time to move on to other things. But yeah, so that's a work in progress. But let's to, to close this out, though, this this idea of reaching people's hearts, at least. Right. And I do think that good activism does have a narrative and at least a thing to mobilize around. And the half earth concept, I think, is one of those. It's a digestible thing. And Obviously, there's more complexity to it. And some of us were like, we want all wilderness. And other people are like, well, we have to do this. And that, that's all going to be a part of it, obviously. But at least a thing to kind of wrap our heads around and unite on, I think that's a, a really beautiful thing. And then just to mention, of, because the first I had heard of this was through E.O. Wilson, who wrote a Half Earth book. But your organization has been around a lot longer. E.O. Wilson, the biologist, obviously is a preeminent biologist and has been around for a long time. Are you pleased with the fact that he took upon those ideas and, and put it out into the world? Or was there a little bit difference? I haven't read his book, sadly. Well, uh, we're absolutely, I'm absolutely pleased. I, I, I love the fact that E.O. Wilson has brought far more attention to this um, than, than we could have. So it's, it's absolutely incredible what he did. Um, the idea for protecting half um, uh, the planet really has been around since the 1970s, and there's a there's an academic lineage there, and really before that, because there were many indigenous leaders before that that were saying the same thing, um, and and now you know the question is well how do we do that? And some people in the half space again they have the silver bullet approach. There's like this one solution that they're going for, and that's it. There's this one map. There's this one like category of protected areas. And I think that in order to achieve this, we need to have a more a broader, more inclusive movement. That doesn't mean we compromise on the ecological integrity of things, but that we use silver buckshot and we incorporate a lot of different ideas. Because I can tell you one thing as an activist, 
it's really hard to get people to participate and take action when you exclude their ideas and their strengths right off the bat. Yeah, the concept of inclusion, basically the idea of including perspectives that you might not even agree with and you don't have to you don't have to utilize every aspect of that, but realizing that those folks have a right to be at the table. So it would be like saying, so I'm pro wilderness, right? I, I want to see all national forests turned into wilderness and I do want to see all logging stop on there. But the idea of like that there are loggers and mill owners and folks like that, they're not going to like that obviously. And I think they should all be well compensated and, and things like that. But the idea of keeping them out of the discussion is not quite fair. So clearly they've got to come to the table in some way and whatever that looks like, I don't think it looks like the current version of coming to the table that a lot of wilderness people bristle against because it's being controlled by those who actually really aren't that interested in wilderness and they sort of toss that out as a bone here. So it's not that, because I know some of our listeners, they got to chill up their spine when I said that word come to the table because they hate that and, and I get it, I hate that too. But well, pre pretend that loggers don't have a voice. Sorry, logger, you don't get a say. They got to be part of the conversation. Wilderness, right now, it's wilderness that is generally excluded from the table. The real well, right. table. It's true. There's, there are these public comment periods, and that's great. But the decisions have already largely been made behind closed doors. They have. Um, and it's not to say it's always the way it works, but it tends to be a trend. Um, so oftentimes, it's wilderness advocates who are excluded from the table. And if, if anything, what I want to do is I want to have conversations with folks. So in my mind, I'm still delusional to think that I can talk to a logger and convince them of the need to protect more wilderness and maybe even realize that, yeah, your industry does have an impact. We do want to transition it. Obviously, we're going to use trees to a certain degree, maybe not to the extent that we currently are. But the idea that we're never going to cut another tree again, I don't know anyone who thinks that's a reality but so taking the adversarial aspect out of it like i i got into the point where I, it used to be no i'm like oh they're doing evil things they're evil people and it didn't help that i was a part of tree sitting movements where loggers literally did shoot at us so i understand <laughs> that there was a little bit of trauma there but yeah. beyond that i realized wait a second I don't actually have to compromise any of my opinions here. I can also see where they're coming from. They have a perspective that's based on, I grew up in this town, my dad did this work, what other jobs am I supposed to do? So they're not gonna, maybe they're not even in an economic position where they can value wilderness. That was because I had enough leisure to, to do that, right? If I was struggling hand and mouth to feed my kids, wilderness would be a lot lower on my totem pole of things I care about. And this, this gets to the systemic aspect. The fact is all of us, even wilderness aspects, are embedded in a system that makes it far easier to extract and exploit nature than it does to restore nature. And that's where we have to really look at how do we change our economy to one that's based on extraction, which it has been for the entire existence of our economy. Yeah. How do we change it from an extractive economy to a restorative economy? what ideas need to change, which cultural practices and what policies need to be put in place. Because we're not going to, we're not going to make it, uh, we're not going to live in a world where people don't have, can't, don't need livelihoods anymore. They need livelihoods. And if we want to build support, how do we do that? 
There's actually several papers that have come out. One is by the World Economic Forum. It just came out recently, and I forget the title, but I would encourage you to look it up. But it's basically saying that if we can change our economy to a restorative economy and protect a large percentage of the earth at the same time, we can actually create $10 trillion. Um, and so I think we, we need to seriously be looking at that adjustment from extractive to restorative, because until we do that, those loggers who depend on cutting trees for their livelihoods are never going to be supportive. And we need their true. support. No, it's true. It's true. And yeah, like I was saying, I, I want to get to the point where I think that I can actually convince these folks. And I got to the point where I can talk to these folks and I'm like, oh, so you're out there, you're out there chopping everything down, huh? But we have a, maybe it's like a slight tension, but we can actually shoot the shit and understand it's like, oh, there's Josh, the wilderness hippie and stuff like that. But we have a, res a genuine respect for each other, even though we have some disagreements. Unfortunately, the political climate these days is anyone I disagree with is evil, pure evil. And I am a pure angel you know, sent from God. That's almost what has come to our political discourse. And I, I think there are a lot of people who rightly bristle and say, well, because I don't want to compromise what I know to be accurately correct based on a lot of the science. And I do think the need to preserve is important, but I don't think that means that we can't have the conversations. The reality is, guess what? The folks who don't think that are in the majority. So the idea of this larger inclusion. I want to have a bigger web where those folks are a part of the conversation, but maybe through a larger lens than they're even looking at. So that that's my naive vision, but it does still, I do still want to come down to the brass tacks of, I think we have lost so much of the landscape that, well, let's just, let's give equal shrift to all the different aspects of like, well, okay, we have this much land left. So we're going to have this much more industrial society, this much, we keep losing it and losing it and losing it. So I think holding even tighter to the little bits that are intact is really important. And maybe there is this transition of some of these landscapes, though I'd be a little skeptical, but it could go from extractive to as we go along to kind of restoration to actually conserving it to preserving it. So in my mind, I would like to see more and more of it get into that wilderness bank as yeah. unrealistic as it might be. As long as I see that as a possibility, I think I'd be okay with, I probably am not ever going to come on the record and say, yes, I support this area being, you know, increasingly logged. I'll probably never support that, but I can realize, okay, that's not where I'm going to fall on my sword to to oppose that. I'm going to focus more and more on encouraging people. Well, let's have more wilderness. Oh, okay, you're going to do that. Well, I don't have any control over that. And let me keep talking to you about that. But I do want to see more, more of the wilderness stuff. And I do want to be able to talk to everyone. And yeah, I've got, I got some shit for, I, I had a, a biomass newsletter. So I was an activist calling attention to the impacts of cutting trees for energy. I think it's not a great idea. And this was early on when pretty much all the environmental groups were in support of it. And eventually, so I, I was around the folks who were opposed to it across the board. And I eventually created a newsletter where I'm not changing my stance at all. And I want to advocate for it, but I actually want to bring in folks who are kind of in the middle or even the people from the biomass industry to have a conversation in one place. Cause I still think I can convince them. And guess what? I think that having their information up against my information 
my information is going to win because it's going to be in one place. But what's funny is I got a lot of pushback, of course, from industry who is like, I'm not going to participate in your thing because you're all hippies and, and whatever. Fine. But I actually got a lot of pushback from folks who agree with me on, no, we need to end biomass. But what are you doing bringing in these yep. loggers? And I told them they have all of the platforms. So, that, so that's what they'll say. And I agree with that. They're, like, they're already on all the platform. We should have a platform that's just for us. It's like, guess what? Our little just for us platform doesn't get that out there anyway. And the idea that we're going to keep them from one little thing as if that's going to influence the larger conversation is ridiculous. I want to bring them into our turf and play totally fair with them. But frankly, I have enough confidence in my arguments that I think I can beat them in the arguments there and you know playing fair letting them have their say but having it in one place because what we end up doing is it's all of their say and then in you know without any of our response and then here it's all of our say without their response that doesn't really accomplish anything bring it all in one place so that is kind of that lens that bigger lens of inclusion i am not giving an inch in terms of my perspective but i want them to be a part of the conversation i want everyone to be a part of the conversation you're you're speaking to the choir here josh i absolutely agree and um, you know, there's there's a word, there's a term for the just for people. It's called echo chamber. Um, we've been in an echo chamber for far too long. Now, over a decade ago, I was a labor organizer, and it we did just that. We brought everybody to the table um, because you have to in order to have negotiations, in order to negotiate a contract. The owners of the company need to be there as well. Now. When we brought those people to the table was oftentimes after we'd shown we were able to flex our muscles and show the pressure and the power and strength that we had. Um, and so then that helped them uh, be in a more uh, persuadable state of mind. <laughs> that way. Yes, yes. Uh, but yeah, so, you know, you can't you can't have you can't have a negotiation with just one side. <laughs> No. And so that's that's the argument that's tough because that's even the conflict I've come up against with the people who I actually agree with on the land ethics stuff 100 percent across the board. And then I say, yeah, that's why we have to have the conversation with the loggers. And then they're like, I don't like you anymore. And it's like, well, how, how well are we doing in our little you know, existing in our little bubble where nobody cares what we have to say? We don't have to budge an inch on our position, but we have to be able to. I think for a second, maybe consider that the other people aren't evil. And I still think I still think any perspective that isn't mine is probably wrong. I'm open to being convinced otherwise, for sure. So I think that's really important. But I actually think I can convince people. That's why I want to bring them in and be friendly with them. At the end of the day, they don't agree with me. That's that's okay too. And I, I don't think most of the environmental movement has gotten there. So I don't have a home in the environmental movement because I've quickly grew out of or whatever happened to, where I, I didn't want to be a part of the mainstream efforts. And like, there's enough going on with that. And I also do want to see more wild protected. And then even I, the wild folks, I because of my wanting to actually engage everyone and accept that sometimes, everybody's a little bit right some of the time that makes me slightly not ostracized from but I, i'm i'm looked askance at by a, a fair amount of wilderness folks but i don't have any misgivings about my views uh, my, my views are very strong on wilderness protection but i think what's different is how do we get there is the question and i think 
talking to folks who maybe I don't agree with 100% like you, but I, I think we agree very much so on, on most of the, the pieces. And I'm actually wanting to move this podcast more and more into people who I disagree with entirely and show that we can have conversations, we can have common ground at the same time. And well, look, here's, here's me talking with a logger. And then guess what? Guess who's going to watch that? Logger folks. Yeah. So then they're going to be, ah, Josh made one good point out of the hour and a half. Okay. And all of a sudden I have maybe influenced those folks the way I would not have because if I had just stayed in my little bubble talking to other wilderness folks. So that, that's kind of my concept. And, uh, I tend to babble, but that's my, my way of communicating and just getting those ideas out there and trying to make sense of them. Cause I'm just figuring this out as I go along. And like I said, I, I believe what I believe, but somebody wants to put out better data, like why we shouldn't do wilderness. But none of what you said is that it's just, here is the way where we're actually able to act with urgency. I, I totally, I totally get that. I'm still going to be pushing for love to see more wilderness as much wilderness as possible. And maybe eventually we can get to the point where it's more and more and more. But I do think this half earth concept is one of the more promising one that's ones that's out there. And I'm really, really psyched that you're doing this. And I really psyched that you came on the podcast. Thank you, Josh. I really appreciate it. And I just, you know, I just want to leave you with this, that wilderness isn't, it isn't a luxury. It isn't just something we, we can enjoy from afar. Um, wilderness is our survival. It is the actual life engine of the planet. And um, I am 100% with you in pushing for more and higher quality wilderness. That's exactly what we need right now. Yeah. Well, we'll see if we get there. <laughs> it's worth a try. What else do we have to do, right? Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Amy. Thank you, Josh. It's, it's good. And do you, do you need anything else from me? I, I need nothing in life, but is there anything else you would like to say before we conclude? I'm good. Thank you. Excellent.